Well, good morning again. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we are in a series called uh, the B-I-B-L-E. We've been studying the Bible, which should be the case in church all the time, don't you think? Studying the Bible. But in this case, we're doing something a little bit different. We're studying kind of the text itself. Uh, what is the Bible? How did the Bible come together? How did we get the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? And three weeks into this sermon series, I preached a message called, Can I Trust the Bible? Does anybody remember that one? Can I Trust the Bible? And what we did was we took four objections to the veracity, the trustworthiness of the scripture, and we did our best to uh, object to them and, and, and to reject them. And so those four objections were, you know, we can't trust the Bible because it's not scientifically accurate. We talked about that one. Uh, We can't trust the Bible because it's not historically accurate. We talked about that one. We can't trust the Bible because the texts are not accurate. They've been revised and edited over time. We talked about that one, and we rejected all of those statements and said they're not true, and here's why. And then the fourth objection was this. We can't trust the Bible Because the Bible has errors in it. And in that sermon, three weeks into our series, I said, uh, we've run out of time and I don't have time to address that one, so let's pray and go home. And everybody went, really? Oh, wow, that's really interesting. So in a sense, today is part two of that sermon that I preached three weeks in, Can We Trust the Bible? And what I want to do today is talk about problematic or difficult texts in the Bible that may seem like they contradict one another. They may seem like they contradict your life experience. They may seem like they contradict science or history or any number of things. And I want to address some difficult texts in the scripture that people, critics of the Bible, scholars have said, look, there's an error right there. It's not scientifically accurate, historically accurate. It's internally inconsistent. There's an error. Therefore, the Bible is not trustworthy. We're just going to throw the whole thing out. I want to address some of those texts. And in my preparation for this sermon, I ordered a couple of books, and one of them is called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. It's right here by a guy named Norm Geisler and Thomas Howe. Uh, Norm Geisler's great, by the way. The subtitle is this, Clear and Concise Answers from Genesis to Revelation. So this book here is concise answers about problematic or difficult biblical text. And what Norm Geisler does is from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, he takes every biblical passage or verse or whatever that could be considered problematic or could be considered an error, and he argues against it. And listen, they are concise answers. There are like four or five answers to different passages on each page of this book. Concise. So if I was going to deal with all the difficult passages in the scripture, we will be here till next Tuesday. Okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something a little different because as I thought and prayed about this sermon, uh, what kind of I feel like the Spirit of God even impressed upon my heart is that more often than not, at least in my own personal experience, um, it's not an error in the scripture, but it's an error on the part of the reader. In fact, I I don't believe there are any errors in the scripture. 
But, but a lot of times when people say, see, there's an error in the Bible text, in the biblical text, and I'll talk to them about how they interpreted it or how they read it or what they read in terms of studying it, commentaries and historical documents and other things, and I'm going, well, you just, you just didn't interpret that correctly. You, di- you didn't read that correctly, and, and, and that's, that's okay. Sometimes we make errors. Sometimes we make mistakes. But in this case, because the Bible is so critically important, we have to read it appropriately and we cannot make mistakes in our interpretation of it that lead us to conclude that the Bible has errors in it when it's our error to begin with. Are you with me? Okay, so I want to just tee it up here with a story just so everybody understands kind of where we're headed. A few years ago, I read a bunch of uh, service calls that Apple gets. Apple, the computer people, right? They make the computers and the phones and things. Okay, so I read a bunch of service calls that they get, and these are people that call in, the computer's broke or their phone's broke or whatever, something's broken, and they need Apple to fix it. So there was one service call in particular where someone called in I said, look, my computer's broken. It's not functioning. It's, it, nothing's happening. And the Apple a representative on the other end of the line and you know, technical support and service said, okay, well, talk me through what's going on. You know, the, you know all the things, a hard restart. You know, is your monitor working? Is, you know, is the things connected and plugged in? And this person said, yes, 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 everything. It's like 30 minutes of troubleshooting. And after 30 minutes, this individual on the phone says, hey, look, I'm on my cell phone. It's running out of batteries. And so if we get cut off, it's because I've run out of batteries and I'm not able to charge my cell phone because I lost power in my house about an hour ago. And the Apple representative on the other end said, well, you are mad because your computer isn't working? Yes, that's correct. And you're telling me that you lost power in your house an hour ago? So maybe, look up here on the screen, maybe that there's your problem right there. That there, as, as my friend Andy Cherry would say, that there's your problem right there. I'll tell you that right now. That there's your problem right there. So you could, if you wanted to, call today's sermon, title today's sermon, that there's your problem right there. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not an error on the part of the text. The computer's not broken. It's us sometimes that are busted, broken, misinterpret, misread, misunderstand the scripture, and conclude that the Bible has errors in it. And I don't want you to make these kind of mistakes. So I want to help you. You could title today's sermon, uh, How to Read Your Bible, Part 4, because that's what we've been doing for the last several weeks. You could title today's sermon, How Not to Read Your Bible, What Mistakes You Don't Want to Make, or you could title today's sermon what I'm going to title today's sermon, because I'm a Dave Letterman fan, uh, Top 10 Bible Reading Mistakes. Top 10 Bible Reading Mistakes. Mistakes that we make when we read and interpret the Scripture that might cause us to believe there are errors there when there are not. And before I go any further, I want to talk to a couple different people, uh, specific folks that that I want to address this morning. And the first group of folks are honest skeptics. Honest skeptics. You may be a person in this room that's uh, thinking about things of God. You're seeking things of God. You're asking spiritual questions for the very first time. And you're asking them in an honest way. But you would still consider yourself a skeptic, maybe even a cynic, when it comes to things of God, when it comes to faith and spirituality and eternity and all of those things. Things. And so here, here's the deal. I'm not under any false impression that today you're going to walk away and go, oh my gosh, the Bible is inerrant. There are no errors in it. I can build my entire life, as we just sang, on the firm foundation of the word of God, and I can love and follow Jesus for eternity, and I'm going to go be a missionary in Africa. Like, that's probably not going to happen, okay? Now, that's not beyond the power of God to do that, so buckle up, just in case he wants to. 
But here's my goal with an honest skeptic this morning is, is maybe there have been some hurdles in your way when it comes to exploring things of faith. Maybe there's been some, some challenges in the way, and one of those challenges is I'm not sure I can totally trust the Bible. If you just walked away this morning and thought, maybe I can. Maybe I can't trust the Bible. Maybe those hurdles are still there, but they feel a little lower today. I can do my own research. I can ask honest questions. I will consider it a win if you walk away, as an honest skeptic, as you walk away, if you walk away thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe it is true. I want to talk a little bit to blind faith Christians this morning, blind faith Christians. I, I, I love this concept of faith and active trust in Jesus and trusting the promises of God. We're going to conclude with a song this morning saying, all your promises are yes and amen. I believe that. But sometimes what happens in, in, in Christian circles is because we don't want to ask honest questions, because we don't want to ask curious questions, because we're afraid of what the answer might be, we trust God with a blind faith and not a reasoned faith, which is really no faith at all, to be honest. And I want to talk to you, especially to parents in the room, especially to parents in the room, because as your children grow, and some of your children may already be in this age group, high school and university, you know that they're going to hear some stuff that's contrary to that book in front of you, right? You know that they're going to hear some stuff about the nature of the world and the nature of morality and how mankind came to be and all sorts of different things that are contrary to the scripture. They are going to even hear some folks that are aggressively contradicting the scripture. I'd call them aggressive atheists. And if they begin to ask you questions that are fact-based and you give them faith-based answers, it's not going to work for them. You have to engage with them. You have to engage your own curious questions because guess what? The Bible's not afraid. Not afraid. You're not going to ask a question. Your kid's not going to ask a question that God goes, oh my gosh, I should have thought of that. I, I, I didn't mean to put that in print in the Bible. I, oh, darn it. You know, God's not going to get surprised or confused. It's okay to engage your brain and to engage your questions and trust Jesus with an eyes wide open faith. And finally, I want to talk to a group of people called nuns. Nuns. And these aren't nuns like, you know, with the clothes and the hat, Mother Teresa nuns. Not those nuns. People that would say, I have no religious affiliation. So when they fill out paperwork, like a census or something like that, what's your religious affiliation? Christian, Hindu, Islam, whatever it is. And then on the bottom, there's one that says none. They would tick that box, none. And that's not a word that I'm making up. That's a word that's used all over uh, kind of scholarly literature right now and, and statistics. In fact, look up here on the screen. A graph that the Pew Research Center uh, just published in the last couple of years says that the number of Canadians who identify as Protestant has decreased over the last 40 years. Those who identify as, as Catholic has decreased over the last 40 years. Those who have, identify as some other religion has increased, but only marginally. But those who would say they're religiously unaffiliated, I'm a nun, I have no religious affiliation, has increased rapidly. And those numbers are only through 2011 and 2018. It's going even further through the roof. Now catch this, catch this. Those that would say I have no religious affiliation, the vast majority grew up in a Christian home. Now, that, that, that should rattle you just a little bit. 
What what they're saying here is that the vast majority of people who say, I have no religious affiliation, grew up going to a church a lot like Bayview Glen, maybe even grew up going to Bayview Glen. And at some point in their life, they started asking fact-based questions. They got faith-based answers that did not satisfy them, and they walked away and deconverted, as Andy Stanley would say. So there may be some of you in the room, some nuns, that say, I have no religious affiliation, but I'm just checking this thing out, or I came because my mom and dad asked me, or I came because there's a cute guy or cute girl, which is fine, that's great, all right, whatever, however got you here, I'm glad for you to be here, okay? Or there may be some folks in this room, and you know full well that that's where you're headed. You're headed towards no religious affiliation. You're headed towards being a nun. And, and if that's you, I don't want you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up so we can pray over you. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. But I want to be really, really honest with you. And this might sting just a little bit. So buckle up. You ready? If you've left the faith already, or if you're considering leaving the faith, for people that I've talked to personally, they give me one, one of two answers as to why they left the faith. Those two answers are this. I left the Christian faith because the church is full of hypocrites. Okay? When you left, we lost one more. Because all of us are hypocrites. Every last one of us. We could do this little exercise where you turn to your neighbor and say, hi, I'm a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite too. It'd be great. It'd be great. Might start some fights. Whatever. That's fine. That's all of us. Okay? Here's the second reason I give. Well, because I discovered that the Bible has errors in it. It's not scientifically accurate. It's not historically accurate. It's internally inconsistent. And the whole faith is built on a text. And if that text is not trustworthy, then I'm walking away. Two things. Number one, our faith is not built on a text. It's built on a person. That's number one. Number two, I'll be real straight with you. That is not a real argument. It's a smokescreen because you didn't want to be a Christian to begin with. So you're looking for something. You're looking for some reason, some argument, some logic that will allow you to walk away from the faith because you wanted to walk away anyway. So here's the deal. If it's me and for some of you parents in the room and friends that have convinced a nun to come with you or something like that, you got to cover your ears on this one. I would rather you just simply say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. I'd rather you just say that because at least you're being honest and then we can have an honest conversation. But as long as you lie to yourself and lie to me and say that, you know, there are, there are errors in the Bible, that's why I'm not a Christian anymore, then we can't have an honest conversation. Because the reality is, the errors that you perceive are not errors on the Bible's part. More often than not, they're errors on our part, the reader's part. As we just said, that there's your problem right there. <laughs> User error. So here's what I want to do. I want to go through top ten mistakes that people make when they read the Scripture And when they make those mistakes, they misread it, misinterpret it, and causes them to conclude that there are errors in it, and and there are not errors in it. And, and, And for each of these mistakes, I want to give you a biblical example, a Bible text, where people have made this mistake, and they would even use it as ammunition. But it's not a mistake on the part of Scripture, it's a mistake on the part of the reader. So let's just start with this first one. Here we go. Mistake number one is we confuse taking the Bible literally with taking the Bible seriously. I want you to know that here in this place, me, our pastoral staff, our elders, we absolutely take the Bible seriously 100% of the time. But we don't always take the Bible literally. Do you get that? The Bible's not always meant to be taken literally. When the Bible uses hyperbole and simile and metaphor and things like that, 
It's not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be taken figuratively. So occasionally we take it literally when it's meant to be taken literally. And we always take it seriously. Can I show you, can I show you an example here? In John, when Jesus says, I am the door, is he a door? Did he magically turn into a door? Someone back here said yes, didn't he? Didn't, I didn't know my kid was here this morning. I, just, I thought she was gone. He didn't magically turn into a door. He is not hallucinating to think he's a door. He's offering us a metaphor. He's offering us some figurative language to help us understand a spiritual reality. We don't always take the Bible literally. And listen, this is low-hanging fruit. Isn't this funny? Like Jesus didn't turn into a door. We all get that. But listen, when you start reading the creation account in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I'm not going to go into all of what I think is supposed to be taken literally and figuratively there because I like my job and I like you people and I want to continue having a relationship with you because that. That one is kind of a sticking point for a lot of us. That's like dynamite for a lot of us. But listen, as you read that, not all of that is meant to be taken purely literally. Not all of it. Not all of it. Okay? Or, or things in the Psalms or, or things in the New Testament even that people get confused and they say, look, the Bible says this and that's not really true. And I'm going, well, that's not meant to be taken literally. The Bible is using figurative language to help us understand a spiritual reality. And it's a mistake on our part, and we conclude that the Bible has errors in it, and that is not an accurate conclusion. Mistake number two, we ignore the human element of the Scripture. We ignore the human element. That's a mistake. We have to be mindful of two things as we read the Scripture. It's difficult to keep these things in balance sometimes, I know. Difficult to keep these things in balance. God inspired the Scripture. All Scripture, as we have declared in this series multiple times, is what? God breathed, theonoustos, it's the breath of God. All scripture is true. And yet, at the same time, on this other side, God has chosen that men and women, human beings, write this stuff down. So there is a human element of, of the scripture. There is a human element where people write things down from their personal perspective. Matthew writes from a very Jewish perspective. Paul writes from the perspective of someone who had converted from a very legalistic background to to Christianity. Luke writes from the perspective as a physician, as a researcher, and as you read what they've written, inspired by God, you will see a human element in all of those situations. I'll show you one from Joshua. Uh, in Joshua, we read this, that Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, so the Amorites and Israel are about to go to battle, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. So from this human perspective, who is writing this historical book of Joshua, it seemed as if the sun stood still and the day extended. Now, can God make the sun stop in the sky? <laughs> Absolutely. Without question. He created the darn thing. He can make it stand still for a couple hours. He can hit pause. That's fine. Did he make it stand still literally? Or is this the human element of somebody saying, it seemed as if this day just kept going on and on so that the nation of Israel could defeat its enemies called the Amorites. You ever have those days at work? It's like, oh my gosh, the sun is standing still. This is unbelievable. This is the longest day I've ever had in my life. Parents, you ever had those days with your kids? I, sometimes Amy will call me at 10 a.m. She's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm at work. She's like, you should be home by now. 
I leave at like five. You know what? She's like, this is the longest day ever. The sun is standing still, right? Could it be that God made the sun stand still? Absolutely, absolutely. But what we're seeing here is the human element of Scripture is just one example where a human being is writing things down from his or her perspective. Mistake number three, assuming that the unexplained is unexplainable. When we assume, watch this now, watch this. Listen to how arrogant this is. If I don't get it, it doesn't exist. If I don't understand it, no one does. That's what that is. If I read something in the Bible and I don't get it and it seems just too too outside of my perspective, I, I can't wrap my head around it, then it must not be true. You know, the, you know the only person that can say that is God, right? If I don't get it, it's not gettable. That's God. That's God's the only person that can say that. That's a pretty arrogant conclusion to say if it's unexplained, it's unexplainable. And this happens when it comes to supernatural things. Jesus heals the blind, the lame. Fed 5,000 people. Actually, it was probably closer to 12,000 because they only counted men back then. He rose from the dead. And we say stuff like, well, I don't get it. Therefore, it must not have happened. The unexplained is unexplainable. Well, that's an error on our part, not on the part of the scripture. It's an arrogant assumption on our part. I'll give you one example just from a historical perspective because this happens not just in supernatural things but in historical things. We talked about this in the book of John as we've been studying the book of John. John writes this, uh, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roof colonnades. He says, all right, in Jerusalem, there's a pool. Here's the setting of the story. There's a pool, it's got five roofed colonnades, porches, Patios, Canadians, patios, all right? So, so when Jerusalem has been excavated over the years, no one has ever found a pool with five roofed colonnades. And so critics of the scripture, and by the way, this is a real Bible text. That I'm just not pulling this out of my ear. This is critics of the scripture, people who reject the veracity of the scripture and the historicity, the authenticity of the scripture would say, look, the scripture is lying to us. There is no place in Jerusalem with five roofed colonnades and it has a pool, no place. So it must have an error in it, therefore we can throw the whole thing out. Until about 10 years ago, they were excavating a new part of Jerusalem, and they found a pool with five roofed colonnades. See, it was for a long time unexplained, but that doesn't mean it's unexplainable. Have you guys seen B-movie? You know B-movie? Like B-E-E, B-movie? Nobody watches cartoons like I do? I'm into cartoons. I love cartoons. And not just because I got a kid that likes cartoons. I just like cartoons. They're simple. They chill me out. I like them. Okay, so B-movie. If you've never seen B-movie, catch B-movie. Jerry Seinfeld voices the B. It's hilarious. It's a great movie. And the way that it starts is that nobody has ever been able to explain how a bee can fly. And it says there's no way, uh, according to the laws of physics, that they should be able to get that fat little body up in the air. That's how B-movie actually starts. And that was true for a very long time. Nobody was ever able to explain explain how a bee could fly, except about five years ago, a scientist figured it out. Scientists figured out that uh, typically as an animal gets smaller or an insect gets smaller, their wings beat faster. So they expected that bees would beat their wings at about 170 RPM, 170 repetitions per minute. That's a bee's wings, by the way. (laughs) I don't know why I do this stuff. All right, this is my internal monologue. 
But the scientists discovered after watching bees in their habitat over and over and over that bees actually beat their wings at 230 repetitions per minute. That's how they're able to fly, and physics explained that. So if we were to see a bee fly by in this room or outside afterwards, and, and we say, oh my gosh, I don't get it, and no one gets it, how a bee is able to fly, that must be an optical illusion. Or that must not be true. Or I must be hallucinating. No one would ever say that. That's silly. Just because it's unexplained, yet unexplained, doesn't mean it's unexplainable. Same thing with the scripture. If you read something and you go, man, this has not yet been explained, doesn't mean it's unexplainable. This is a truth that happens all throughout other areas of life, and it's applicable to the scriptures as well. Mistake number four. If we've got a partial report, then it must be a false report. If someone in the scripture tells us only part of a story, they must be lying to us. This happens in the synoptic gospels all the time. Synoptic means same voice. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They write from kind of a similar perspective. Sin meaning same, optic meaning perspective. So they write from a similar perspective. And each of them tell similar stories, or they tell the same story from different perspectives, but they tell it differently. So let's talk about one in particular where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am, Peter? Who do you say I am? Matthew says that Peter's response is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There's the full response. Do you see it? Mark tells us that Peter's response is, you are the Christ. Partial report, isn't it? Luke tells us that Peter's response is, you are the Christ of God. Partial report, isn't it? Therefore, the Bible is lying to us. Therefore, it's got internal inconsistencies. Therefore, it's not trustworthy. That's not an accurate conclusion. Partial reports are not necessarily false reports. I could tell you that I went to go see a movie with Kevin Chan and his family this week. And, 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 and that might be true. It's not, but let's say it is, all right? Just for sake of the argument. And then I could also tell you that I went to see a movie this week. Both of those statements would be true. One of them's partial, one of them's complete, or more complete, but they're both true, equally true, aren't they? Same thing here. A partial report is not necessarily a false report. We can't conclude that the Bible has errors just because there are partial reports. This is, again, the human element coming in. Mistake number five, to assume that divergent accounts are false accounts. Sometimes we get divergent accounts in the scripture, different uh, viewpoints of history, people telling us the same story from different perspectives. And those accounts might feel like they're divergent, but just because they're divergent doesn't mean that they're false. Let's take a biblical example once again. After Jesus uh, was crucified, buried, women went to the tomb to anoint his body. And when they went to the tomb, they found that the tomb was empty. An angel asked them, I love this question, why do you look for the living among the dead? Love that. Love that. And Matthew tells us this, uh, but the angel said to the woman, how many angels were there? Come on now. One. Okay. This is what John tells us. And, and, And she saw two angels in white where the body of Jesus was laying. So how many angels were there? One or two? Two. You know what? Thank you so much. That's actually a pretty good impression of me, too, by the way, that that little girl's doing in the back. That's amazing. You know, because here's the deal. Can 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 I just clue you in on something? Anytime there are two, there's always one. <laughs> just kind of happens that way. Okay, Just because Matthew makes the choice to report about only one angel doesn't mean there weren't more than one angel there. You with me? 
And we assume, and I'm telling you, and you might look at that and go, well, that makes sense. It does, it does. But critics of the scripture would say that scripture is not trustworthy because there are divergent accounts. And it's really easy to work towards what's called harmonization in the gospel accounts, harmonization. It's helping us to see the gospel accounts together from, you know, they're telling the same stories, but from different perspectives. And that's what we're working toward, especially when we're reading the gospels. That's one example of how we can achieve harmonization by looking at those two texts and saying, okay, instead of assuming that this thing is lying to me, let's assume it's telling me the truth. Let's assume the Bible is telling me the truth. And what might uh, my error be as I read this text? In this, particular text? in this particular case, the error is assuming that divergent accounts are false accounts. That's not a correct assumption. Mistake number six, divergent manuscripts are false manuscripts. Divergent manuscripts are false manuscripts. Remember, at the very beginning of this series, we talked about that we don't have any extant manuscripts of the scripture. Uh, that, that means uh, we don't have any original copies that like Paul actually wrote with his hand, you know, sincerely, hugs and kisses, love Paul. We don't have those, okay? What we have are copies of those. And over time, those copies have been damaged, have been blurred, have, you know, we have a little bit of Joshua here and a little bit of Joshua here. And then we discovered a lot more of Joshua Joshua and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what happens is all those things get put together. And over time, our translation of the scripture gets better and better and better and better and better. So just because two manuscripts don't match up doesn't mean that God made an error. It simply means that two manuscripts, copies of the originals, don't match up. I'll give you one example of how our translation of the scripture has gotten better over time. The King James Version is an old version of the scripture. And in the King James Version, we're told that an individual was 2 and 20 years old when he began to reign. That's 22. Okay? And in another book, 2 Chronicles, we're told that that individual was 40 and 2 years old. So what was he? 22 or 42? 22 or 42? He can't be both. Okay, one thing that you can look at and say, well, he's probably not 42, because if I read the scripture really closely, that would make him older than his dad. So he's probably not 42. So what happens is a process called textual criticism. Textual criticism. What happens is that there are people that they do this for their job. They're scholars. Their whole life is spent collecting all the copies of manuscripts because we have multiple copies of each biblical book. We have a lot of those texts. You can go back and look at Can I Trust the Bible sermon and, and, and see how many we actually have. And over time, they put those things together and they come up with better and better translations over time. So here's the deal. When the Hebrew Bible was originally written, there were no vowels in that language, just consonants. A thousand years later, vowels were added. These are very old manuscripts, and they have been, like I said, damaged, and we have partials of them. And as we put them together, we discover exactly what was said. So let's say, for example, you got a letter in the mail tomorrow, and it said this. Won the $5 million sweepstakes. What are we hoping this word is? You, right? Oh, man, I'm optimistic because I'm pretty sure that's you. And what if the next day you got this letter in the mail? Ha-ha! 
Now I've got two letters, put to, two letters in the mail, two things that I've received, and I put them side by side, and now I'm absolutely positive that I just won the $5 million sweepstakes. It's always a lie anyway, but that's beside the point. That's what textual criticism looks like. So in the case of that 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles example, over time, as textual critics have gathered more and more manuscripts and more and more copies, they've discovered that there was a copyist error, a manuscript error, or a manuscript that they didn't yet have when the King James Version was translated. But now, with all of those texts in their hands, if you read the English Standard Version or the New International Version, which are newer translations, what you'll find is that in both cases, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, that king is 22 years old. Because over time, we've discovered not we, other people, smarter people than me, that there were just some errors in the copying of the manuscript. That's not God's error, that's a copyist error. And just so you know, just so you know, 99.8% of what we have in the text, in the biblical text, is undisputed, number one. Number two, no Christian doctrine is based on a disputed text. Go back and listen to Can I Trust the Bible if you want to listen to more about that. Mistake number seven, I think we're on. Demanding precision. If we demand precision from the authors of Scripture, they are not going to give it to us a lot of times. They're going to give us round numbers. They're going to give us general geographical locations. They're not going to give us precision like we want it. It's our modern mind uh, uh, reading the Bible through a modern lens. And the Bible is a text of antiquity. It's a spiritual text. It's not a modern scientific text. One example is in 1 Chronicles. Joab, who is David's military leader, says to David, there were 1.1 million men who drew the sword in Israel. And then in Judah, there were 470,000. These are not precise numbers. They're round numbers. He's reporting to David, uh, there is about 1.1 million and about 470,000. That doesn't mean he's telling a lie. That doesn't mean it's a false statement. That doesn't mean it's a false record. I just gave you budget numbers and I said 1.5 million and 1.6 million. Was I blowing smoke up your kilt? No. No, I'm just using round numbers. That's a normal thing that we do, and that's a normal thing that the Scripture does. And when we demand precision from the Scripture, it's going to cause us to misread, misinterpret, and conclude that the Scripture is not trustworthy when it very well is. Mistake number eight, general statements that don't work are false statements. This is, a, this is an assumption, a false conclusion, that general statements, especially when they don't work, are false statements. There's a couple kind of different things in Scripture. Sometimes God gives us kind of a, a formula and a precision of something. Every time this happens, this is how it works out. When it comes to salvation, A plus B plus C equals D. It's that way every single time. You can take it to the bank. It never changes the process for salvation. But then there are some times where the Bible gives us wisdom. Like in Proverbs, like in Ecclesiastes. It gives us general guiding principles for life. But they're not formulaic in nature. For example, the author of Proverbs says, Train a child up in the way he should go. Even when he was old, he will not depart from it. Now, I'm not going to ask parents in the room to raise their hand and say, I train my child up and they have most definitely departed. You should see how many piercings they have. It's crazy, right? 
Like, that's a joke, by the way, for those of you who didn't know that, all right? But some of you parents would read that and go, hey, uh, I did. I trained a, my child up the way they should go, but, but they did depart from it. The Bible is lying to me. No, the Bible's not lying to you. It's a general principle. It's not a formula. These are general statements uh, that, that guide our life. They're principles that guide our life, but they're not formulas. And when we make that mistake, we could conclude that the Bible is with error when it is without error. Mistake number nine is when we base an entire doctrine on one obscure passage. Base an entire doctrine, an entire lifestyle, an entire theology, an entire belief system on one obscure passage. Has anybody ever known anybody or seen anybody on the news or anything? Like a lot of times cults do this. There's a group of people in uh, the Ozark Mountains and the kind of Appalachian Mountains in the United States. All the weirdos are from the U.S., by the way. I think that just kind of happens. I'm from the U.S., just in case anybody's wondering, all right? So I have a little bit of freedom to say that stuff. And they've based their entire worship practice on this one obscure passage that's up here on the screen. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, and they will pick up serpents with their hands. You guys ever heard of the snake handling people? Like in the Appalachian Mountains, there are really groups of people that would say, we are Christians, we base our, you know, that, that we believe the Bible and Jesus and all that stuff, but they literally pick up snakes during their worship service. And they say, well, the Bible promises that if I pick up a serpent with my hand, the thing is not gonna bite me and kill me. And then they pick up snakes, and what happens? The thing bites them. And then they go, well, the Bible promised. No, the Bible didn't promise. Number one, number one, this is the only time in all of the scripture that there is a reference to people picking up serpents with their hands. It's only one, so it's very obscure. It's the definition of obscure. Number two, this particular passage in the scripture, if you would pick up your Bible and thumb through it and find that passage, you would see that there's an editor's note that this shows up in later manuscripts. It's not in our earliest manuscripts. So they're basing it off something that shows up in later manuscripts, not the original manuscripts, off of one obscure passage, and they're making an error in their interpretation of the text. It's not that the Bible is in error. And you might think to yourself, man, I don't do that. Nobody I know does that based an entire theology or an entire life practice on one obscure verse. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> Oh, yes, people do, even very normal people who don't live in the Ozarks. For example, there was a trend in Christianity about 20 years ago where people were building an entire lifestyle and an entire theology off of one verse. And if you know the verse, you're going to laugh really hard. Here we go. And Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, apparently nobody knows that verse because nobody laughed. Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border. I love this prayer. It's a great prayer. And there was a book that was released about 25 years ago called The Prayer of Jabez, which I own. It's a decent book. It's not horrible. But people began to base their entire theological framework, their lifestyle, and their doctrine off of this one obscure verse. And here at the bottom, it says that God granted what Jabez asked. God granted what Jabez asked. So people would say, if I pray this prayer exactly as it's told, it's, the Bible is telling me to do, word for word every day, then God will enlarge my territory and his right hand will be with me and all of these promises. And God is going, you're basing an entire theology an entire doctrine off of one obscure verse. That's a biblical error. Or that's, a, that's your error. That's not a biblical error. 
Finally, mistake number 10 that people make when they read the scripture and might conclude, and they might conclude, falsely conclude, that the scripture has errors is, is the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. The Bible's guilty until proven innocent. Frankly, we come with baggage. We come with built-in notions about the scripture already. And we want the scripture to prove itself to us. And a lot of times, you'd read people, you'd read scholars and historians that say, all right, the Bible says this about history, but there was this other Egyptian text that was written at the same time, and it says something different. So we're going to take the Egyptian text at its word. Why? Because their assumption is the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. The Bible is false until it's proven true. And they take the Egyptian text. All the while, there are these pharaohs that are controlling all the literature in the Egyptian empire and they're, it's called revisionist history where they're changing history to make themselves look good. Those are false texts. In the Bible, peasants and, and, and people who had nothing to gain and nothing to lose telling us exactly what happened. Eyewitnesses and we're taking some Greek text or some Egyptian text at its word rather than taking the Bible at its word because the Egyptian text doesn't claim to have authority over your life. The Greek text doesn't claim to have authority over your life, but the Bible does. And because we don't want the Bible to have authority over our life, because we want authority over our life, we assume that the Bible is guilty until proven innocent or it's false until proven true. And that's a mistake. It would lead you to conclude that the Bible has errors in it. And the reality is that's our interpretive error. It's user error. Here's the deal. In the next couple weeks, uh, next week we're doing FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions About the Bible. You can post on Facebook or on Instagram some of your questions. I'll try to address as many as I can next week as we conclude our series called the B-I-B-L-E. The following week, Dr. Dennis Nian uh, from Tyndale Seminary is going to be here sharing God's word with us. He's fantastic. He's brilliant. You're not going to want to miss it. In the meantime, here's my goal today and throughout this entire series, that you love your Bible more that you read your Bible more, that you understand your Bible more, that you submit to your Bible more, that you acknowledge that it is God-breathed, the very words of God, and it has authority for your life. And today, that it is without error. Let's pray together. God, thanks for the opportunity to share this morning. Thanks so much for your word and for the truth of your word. God, would you teach us, remind us, affirm for us the authenticity of those 66 books that we hold in our hand and we call it the Bible. May we seek to live under its authority, ultimately under your authority. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said... Amen. I love that we're concluding with this song this morning. All of God's promises are yes and amen. Let's stand together and sing.